If I haven't met you, I'm Jennifer Roth. Uh, after Kara's introduction, I'm feeling like it better be pretty good this morning. <laughs> I, um, I work here at Salem Alliance for 20 hours a week as the pastor of women's ministries, and I love the gathering, and I love when we get together, and I'm really excited about the topic we're going to unpack today. So we are talking about, does the Bible really say the man is to be the spiritual leader of the home? And before I can really launch into the biblical study of this that we're going to do this morning, I kind of need to set the stage because this topic needs a context. If it's just kind of out of the blue, you can go, where's she coming from and why are we talking about this? And so it starts with a story that some of you heard if you were here in October, you heard part of it. But back in the summer, uh, in my kitchen... I was having a morning with my children, I was getting things ready, and somebody came out to the blueberry field. Now, if you don't know this about me, my husband is um, part of the family that runs Willamette Valley Fruit Company. We live out towards Silverton, and the blueberry fields where some of you may have you picked is my backyard, and if you know me well enough to have my cell phone number, you should probably text me and tell me that you're going to be out there, because if you get home and post post on Facebook that you've been to my backyard and you didn't tell me you were coming to say hi then I might just chew you out because, I mean, if you know me well enough to have my phone number, then you should tell me when you're coming to my backyard. So I have a friend who may or may not be Kara Brown who sometimes forgets to text me when she's coming to my blueberry field but posts beautiful pictures of she and her lovely kids in my backyard when she gets home. So this one particular day, she came out to my backyard, and having been chewed out before, she didn't want to get chewed out again, so she uh, shot me a quick text. And I said, come over. So she and her friend ran over to my house, but they didn't have any time. We only have like two minutes. The guys are over at the store, but we just didn't want to get chewed out by you for coming out and not saying hi, right? (laughs) So Kara was there with her cousin, and she's like, we only have two minutes, but we just, we're visiting a little bit. And as we're visiting, we get to talking about the young man, man that her cousin is dating. And Kara says, so... Tell her what you think about the man being the spiritual leader of the home. And I went, and you have two minutes? (laughs) I mean, really? So I don't know if you're like this. I'm learning that one of the differences between an extrovert and an introvert is that an extrovert has to talk to know what they think. And sometimes I don't know if I believe something until I've said it out loud. And then I go, oh, no, I don't really think that's true. Or yes, I do think that's true. So I think and I'm processing as I'm talking. And and an introvert can, I'm kind of amazed by this, but they can actually figure it all out in their own head and then like say what they think. It's really kind of crazy. I can't do that. So this particular morning, it took longer than two minutes. We had a great conversation about it. And, and I kept just kind of talking and realizing I actually have quite a few opinions and thoughts on this. And at one point in the conversation, I, I turned to this gal and I said, what's your picture of what it means for the man to be the spiritual leader of the home? And we continued our conversation from there. And it was from that question that the bigger question rose. What is God's picture of what it means for the man to be the spiritual leader of the home. And quite frankly, does the Bible actually say that? I came in the following morning and was chatting with uh, Barbara Fletcher about the conversation we had had. And she said, you know, I was at a conference once where the woman said, I challenge you to show me in the Bible where it says that the man is supposed to be the spiritual leader of the home. And ladies, the reality is it doesn't. There is nowhere verbatim that the Bible says the man is supposed to be the spiritual leader of the home. So where did that idea come from? What does the Bible say? We're going to talk this morning about what our ideas are of spiritual leadership, what the problem is with pithy statements that kind of catch momentum in evangelical circles, and where this comes from in the Bible, and what does it reflect about God's heart for us. So before we dive into that, I want to ask you the question that I asked the woman in my kitchen, that question of what's your idea of the man being the spiritual leader of the home. And I want to acknowledge that some of you might have a lot of background and history with this idea, and you might need to share, this is what I thought it was, and this is what I'm learning about it. And some of you might go, this is the first time I've ever heard that phrase. You've not been raised in Christian culture, and you didn't know that this was like a really big idea in evangelical Christian circles, that the man is to be the spiritual leader of the home. And you might go, I don't really have any preconceived ideas about what that looks like. So I'm going to give you some time at your tables, probably five to ten minutes, so not a long time. So talk fast and just some time to talk about what does it mean for the man to be the spiritual leader of the home. Okay, I'm guessing you're not quite all the way done. 
Um, but I want to ask if anybody has something that you would just be willing to shout out. Just some perception of what it means for the man to be the leader. A servant like Christ. Thanks, T. That concept is traditional in the church. Maybe not biblical, okay? Okay, so a man taking initiative in spiritual things in the home. Okay? Anyone else? JJ. I said, for sure we know. Okay. Outward spirituality isn't always maturity. And that when you look at the Bible and you see scriptures about men and women and scriptures about parents and children, you can kind of construct a diagram of the man is kind of the overarching umbrella over the family, including the wife and kids. But within that, there's elbow room uh, within that place with the man overarching. Okay. Did I see another hand? Mabel. If you didn't hear it, the man is the head, but the wife is the neck that turns the head. That came up last night, too. Thank you for those words of wisdom. <laughs> for a long time, the sum total of my understanding of what it meant for the man to be the spiritual leader of the home was that um, in a healthy relationship, um, a husband and wife would talk things through, would have conversations about things, but in the end, it's the man who gets to make the decision. This was a decision-making concept, okay? And as I got older, coming to find out that there was kind of this, this expectation that being the spiritual leader of the home would mean probably leading your family in devotions, uh, leading your family in prayer time, maybe being the initiator of couples praying together, and this was kind of the sum total of my understanding of what I thought that I had been taught on the man being the spiritual leader of the home. And, and I really wasn't very settled with that. Um, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. It didn't seem like the full picture. Um, quite frankly, we're not going to talk a lot about the verses today that talk about wives submitting to your husband, but they fit into this puzzle, okay? And I remember getting engaged to Jeff, and some of you have heard me say this before. I went home that night. Uh, he dropped me off, went back to his house. I went into my house, crawled into bed, got my journal out, and said, Dear God, it suddenly becomes imperative for me to understand what it means for a wife to submit to her husband. <laughs> and I have to confess that this teaching makes me angry. And it didn't make me angry because I thought God was bad. It made me angry because I didn't understand it, and it didn't make sense. And I prayed a prayer to God that night, and I said, God, I believe that you are good, and that what you want for me is good, and that your word says I'm supposed to submit to my husband, but I don't believe submission means what I've always been taught it means, and when you want to teach me, I am ready to learn. And that, that prayer fits what we're talking about here with the spiritual leadership, because submission is willingly laying yourself down and your rights down under a person who is leading, Right? So the two go together. So with that sum total of my knowledge, I entered marriage just going, I don't really get what God's picture is. Now, I need to say a couple things. The first one is, my husband is amazing. I feel like we've got a great relationship. Um, he does not lead our family in devotions, but he's an amazing leader. And as I unpack ideas today, I need you to know that I am unpacking ideas that come from philosophical and theological, cultural, religious background. I am not unpacking things that I am wrestling with in my home. Uh, my husband is an amazing man who I think does a fantastic job at what we're going to unpack of what it looks like for the man to be the head of his home. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, details. Uh, there is a stack of papers on your table, and if you are a note taker and you haven't found these yet, this is a general outline of where we're headed this morning, so you could grab those and take notes. I was really uber uh, organized this time, which is unusual for me, so enjoy it this month, those of you who like uber organization. And I have two different types of notes for you that you could pick up at the end if you want, okay? The green one are copies of the slides that you'll see on the screen. So if there was a quote or a scripture passage or something that you wanted, these are all the slides on the green packet in the back, okay? The yellow one is more of kind of my running stream of thought as I was getting prepared, and it's not quite as cleaned up as I would have liked, but it's got the main ideas, and it's got some extra scripture passages listed than what we're going to talk about today because there just isn't time to talk about all of them. 
So those are my notes, and they are available in the back if you want them. There are some other handouts back there too, but we're going to get to those a little bit later. Okay. So where does this idea come from? If the Bible doesn't say verbatim, the man is to be the spiritual leader of the home, where does it come from? And the first passage that we're going to look at is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. Now, if you brought your Bible, I would recommend opening up to Ephesians. That's where we're going to spend most of the time. If you didn't, the passages will all be on the screen that we're going to talk about together today. So reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. Now, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God, okay? So this is where this idea comes from. This is why there is a tradition within our religious um, culture that says the man should be the spiritual leader of the home, and it comes from this idea of the man being the head of the woman as God is the head of Christ and as Christ is the head of the church and of man. Um, we see that again in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of whom, of which he is the savior. So we have a biblical background for why this tradition exists, but what happens is it turns into this pithy statement, and we've talked about this before. This is why we're doing the series, Does the Bible Really Say? Because within our religious tradition, there are these statements like, God helps those who help themselves that have nothing to do with the Bible, and like, God will never give you more than you can handle, which isn't in the Bible, does have a verse that it comes from, but that is not what the verse means. And so we have these pithy statements that, that they, they kind of gather a life of their own, and sometimes we have to deconstruct what it has come to mean so that we can reconstruct what God really meant it to mean. So here's the problem with our pithy statements. Number one, they can easily become a stereotype where one size fits all. And we go, the man is to be the spiritual leader of the home, and this is what it looks like. Okay? That's a problem. The second problem is legalism. It can take on a life of its own, and it can come to mean things that God never intended it to mean. And it, it, it's just kind of like that, that snowball gathering on the mountain that begins to avalanche. And you and I have both seen this concept taken to extremes that are not healthy, that are not God-honoring, and do not reflect God's heart for women where there is somebody who is being abused or being oppressed or at the least being controlled in the name of the man is the spiritual leader of the home. But the man is not living, as T mentioned and brought up, the same way that God laid down his life for us. And the third problem with pithy statements are our expectations. They can be based on our experience rather than based on what the Bible says. And so we expect it to look a certain way. And I don't know if you've noticed this about expectations, but a lot of times I don't know that I had expectations until they weren't met. It's like they were under the waterline, and then something didn't happen, and I'm really disappointed, and I'm like, wait a second, I had an expectation in place that I hadn't even seen until I bumped into it. And these expectations can be based on our experience. So for example, I grew up in a Christian home in the 1970s and 80s that fit one particular picture of what the man being the spiritual leader looked like. And that's all my experience. That's all that I knew. Kara grew up with a single mom. And her mom was everything. Provider, protector, nurturer. Her mom is a rock star. But Kara had no framework whatsoever for a man in the family at all. So the Bible, so she's going to Simpson College as a young adult, and the Bible and her Bible classes are talking about the man being the spiritual leader of the home, and she's like, uh, I have no framework. There's no frame of reference for this in my experience. And so if we get stuck on a pithy statement, we can be led into error that is not God's heart, which is why we deconstruct and reconstruct, and which is why I am personally looking to move away from the word leadership, not because I don't think there is a role and a place biblically for men and women to have differences, but because leadership has so much cultural connotation, so much expectation, and has a box that looks like, I mean, come on, you guys. If we're talking about leadership, there is a picture that comes to mind in our Western culture for most of us that looks like a pretty strong person who's probably a quick processor and a quick decision maker, 
who has a strong voice and isn't afraid to use it, and who is pretty charismatic in that people really love to follow. And most of us would finish that sentence by saying, him. People want to follow him. That's our picture of leader, okay? It might not be yours, but that's the one that I am assuming is kind of a pretty generalized picture, okay? So why does this matter? Why does it matter what we think the Bible says about the man's role in the home? And why does it matter to us? I'm preaching to women. It's not like I need to teach you what, this isn't about what your role is. It matters, first of all, because we need to know what God's heart is for women. And if we think God's heart fits in the stereotypical, legalistic, formulaic, picture one size fits all, that the man is the spiritual leader of the home means he's going to respectfully take your opinion and then he gets to make the decision. It is very easy for us to think that God thinks that we are second-class citizens. It's very easy for women to wonder, what is God's perspective on me if we get stuck, and especially if we have witnessed in our own family of origin or if we are married and having trouble with somebody who is a controlling person and using the word of God as an excuse to control and we've witnessed that, it can really, really do damage to our perception of what God thinks of women because if this is okay with God, then what does that say about me? And so whether you are married or not, I believe this matters because it matters for us to see what God's heart is for us as women. It also matters because if you are not married at this time and you are thinking of getting married, it is really important for you to know how to know what to look for in a man that you might marry. This, uh, this gal that I was talking to in my kitchen, when I asked her that question, what's your view of the man being the spiritual leader of the home? The reason we were in this conversation is because she was dating somebody that she was very serious about, but she was really wondering if he could be the spiritual leader of their home. And when I asked her, what's your picture of a man being the spiritual leader of the home? She says, well, it's the way my dad did it. Well, that's fantastic. I am so glad that she has a beautiful picture of the way that her dad husbanded his family. But this man that she's dating is not her dad. And, and how does she have a framework for how to recognize if this is a man who is following Christ's ways and, and being able to fo be, follow him as a wife if her only frame of reference is the only person that she's ever seen do it before and the only way she can decide if she can marry this guy is if he looks enough like her dad or not. And ladies, I don't know if you know this, but that's a really, really dangerous way to choose a husband. We need a grid and a frame of reference for how to recognize if the person that we are considering spending the rest of our life with is a person that is reflecting the nature and character of Christ beyond our own experience. And the third reason it matters is that if we are married, we need to know how to relate to our husband in a biblical and a God-honoring way. And there is a biblical and a God-honoring way to relate to our husbands. So let's dive in. I'm going to circle back here to the 1 Corinthians verse. You have it on the screen. What does the Bible say? It says, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, I want to push pause on this just for a second to say this. You might not be surprised to know that I've actually spent quite a bit of time reading quite a few books on what the Bible has to say about women and men and leadership, and marriage, and relationship, and, you know, hypothetically speaking, whether or not a woman should be able to, you know, do something like preach. Um, I've read quite a bit of that, and in reading that, this verse comes up often, and there's, um, there's kind of two trains of thought in this whole men and women thing, and, and one would be, and I keep forgetting the other word, uh, one is complementarian, and, and I thank you, and the other is egalitarian. So complementarian is the one that says, Men and women complement each other, and men have a role that is the leader of the home, and they're the ones who need the speaking roles. It's the more conservative one. An egalitarian would be the one that says God created all people equal. It says that in Christ Jesus there are now no longer slave or free, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, and we are equal and we can all do the same things, okay? So when you take that in the context of this question, I kind of frame it this way. This egalitarian side is kind of like somebody saying, you're not going to be the boss over me. Okay? And the complementarian side, taken far too far to the other end of the spectrum, is the side where you say, I'll just do whatever. It's the picture that you have of doormats. 
I'll just do whatever, and because this is what the Bible says I have to do, I have no opinion, I have no life, I have, okay. So those are the extremes. The snotty, you don't get to be the boss over me, and the, you can just do whatever you want, okay? Neither of those extremes are healthy. And so in this argument, this verse has come up, and people will try to either make it say that head doesn't mean leader, and so head doesn't mean that there's any authoritarian structure, and so the man isn't really over the woman, and others will make it say, no, there is a hierarchical authoritarian structure, and it goes God, Christ, man, woman. And for me, neither of those really met or answered my heart. And a few years ago, I was listening to a guy speaking on this on a CD series, and he said, God has given us a metaphor in this passage, and I suggest that we use it. We don't need to figure out what head means. We don't need to figure out if head means authority or if head means boss or if head means source. That's one of them. Head can mean source, like the source of a river. So, I mean, theologically, this, just start reading. There's a lot out there. This one that I was listening to brought some things into clarity for me because he says, the verse says that God is the head of Christ. So if we want to know what it means for the man to be the head of woman, let's look at how God is the head of Christ. And Christ is the head of man. So if we want to know how man is ordained by God to be the head of woman, then let's look at how Christ is the head of man. And I just went, wow, there is a biblical avenue for an answer that is not the snotty, you won't be boss over me, nor the doormat, you can do whatever you want. And it's this picture of what is it that God is actually saying? So we're going to dive in. How is God the head of Christ? And I am reading in Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. On the slide, it starts in 19. So you can catch up with me in just a second. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he, that's God, has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So how is God the head of Christ? He exalts him. He lifts him up. He says, come, sit on my right hand and rule with me. And I will give you a role and I will give you a purpose and I will take your resurrection and I will give you all power and all authority over all of creation. How does God be the head of Christ? He empowers him and releases him to do what he was made to do. Jesus wasn't created. Forgive me, that's a theological error. <laughs> but he raises up and empowers Jesus. Okay, so how is Jesus the head of man? We turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So how is Christ the head of man? Well, he raises us up with him, and he seats us in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, that we might know the riches of his grace and his kindness. And if you flip back to Ephesians 1, where we were reading about God, it talks about us knowing the hope that, to which he's called us, the riches of his inheritance, and his incomparable power for us who believe. So how is Christ the head of man? He empowers us. He lifts us up. He says, come, sit beside me, rule with me, be a part of my kingdom. At the end of Matthew, the end of his life here on earth, Jesus said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, you go and make disciples of all nations. I have been raised up and exalted by my Father. Therefore, I raise up and I exalt you and release and empower you to go and do what I created you to do, to be a part of building the kingdom, to be a part of something amazing, to be a part of something powerful. 
He's given us his Holy Spirit. He's given us spiritual gifts, things that we're good at, things that we are spiritually, supernaturally empowered to do, things that fall into our personality or our skill set that's just the way we think or the way that we process. Some of you are teachers and some of you have been nurses and some of you are moms and some of you are are. Um, administrative people who do things I can never do and keep things organized. These are the way God has wired you. And how does Christ lead us? By saying, come, sit with me, walk with me, take my yoke. That's when you put two oxen together and they pull together. Jesus says, let's be partners and do what you were created to do. And I love this because, and please don't hear me being snarky. I just thought this was really good. The the CD that I was listening to, the guy says, he says, you know, so how is God the head of Christ? He raises him up and he empowers him. And how is Christ the head of man? He raises up men and he empowers men. And how is man the head of woman? Hey, baby, you got to do what I say because that's what the Bible says. (laughs) I'm the man. And I want to push a few buttons right here. I think if we limit what it looks like for a man to be the leader of our home, to decision-making, we have made a very big mistake. A very big mistake. Because I don't see anything in the way that God is the head of Christ that says he's the boss and gets to make all the decisions. And I don't see anything in the way that Christ is the head of man where Christ exerts his right to be the boss and make all the decisions. Is God sovereign? Yes. Can God control the whole universe? Yes. Is he the boss? Yes. Does he exert his right to do that? No. Ladies, God put a bad choice in the garden because he didn't want you and I to be robots who only did what we were supposed to do because there was no other option. He wanted our love for him to be a choice that we made so that our relationship with him could be a real and a true and a heartfelt love relationship. And it cannot be a love relationship if we are slaves. It cannot be a love relationship if there is no bad choice in the garden. And that does not mean we should make the bad choice. That means that is how God set up his created universe, was that we would have free will and we could choose. Is God overall? Yes. Does he demand his right that you and I always do what he says? No. Is he sad when we don't? Yes. Is it better for us when we obey him? Yes. But is his heart for us to be slaves? No. I think this picture is so much bigger than who is the decision maker in the home. There is no formula. There is no box. This is a symbiotic, organic, moving, live thing, this relationship between men and women. And you can't define it as narrowly as it has tried to be defined. So how is a man called to be the head of woman? How is a husband called to be the head of his wife? We find it in Ephesians, reading from parts of chapter 5. I kind of skipped around so we didn't have to read all of it. So starting in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Love your wife as your own body. Love your wife as you love yourself. And if we look into 1 John, which is the next one on the slide, it says this is how we know what love is that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So what is the call of the man to be the head of the woman? It's to lay down his life for her. It's to lay down his own rights. And it's to promote her well-being. And it's to promote her giftedness. And it's to promote her strength. So what does it mean to be the head It means to raise up. It means to empower. It means to give authority. It means to demonstrate grace and kindness. It means to give hope. It means to love. It means to lay down one's life for another. And I want to point out that in Philippians, we find that this is actually a universal instruction. This isn't just an instruction to men. Uh, This is not on the slides. This is off the organizational track that I was on, and that's okay because we're just going to turn there for a minute. I'm reading from Philippians chapter 2. It says, Each of you 
should look only, not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. So our attitude as humans, men and women, is to be just like Christ, who even though he was God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself. He laid down his rights, and he considered the interest of others, not only his own, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And ladies, before we continue, I have to point out that this universal call is to us as well. And so when we take time to talk about submission, God is not asking us as wives to do anything other than what he's asking all of humanity to do, to lay down our rights and love one another by looking to his interests, not just our interests. See, this is next month's talk for crying out loud, but I think I'm supposed to say a little bit of it right now. The problem isn't whether or not we need to lean more to the right or lean more to the left. The problem is that we need to think about ourselves less and think about others more, whether we're male or female. Okay, we're going to get to that one more next month. The problem isn't whether or not we need to lean more to the right or lean more to the left in this theological spectrum. The problem is that we need to think of ourselves less and think of others more. So how do we deconstruct what our pithy statement has come to mean so that we can reconstruct what we're finding that God means when he says that man is to be the head of women as Christ is the head of the church? So the first deconstruction is that being the spiritual head is not one size fits all. I think I've hit that well enough. It's not going to look the same for every marriage. And so if you're looking over here at a good marriage and you're going, why doesn't my husband look more like him? You need to stop. Okay? This is not one size fits all. Second, being the spiritual head is not the same as a legalistic stereotype of leadership. This is not a military base. This is not a place where it's okay for someone to be abusive or controlling. That is not what the Bible is giving men leeway to do. The Bible is asking men to lay down their lives. And in asking women to submit... It is asking women to willingly lay down their life for someone who is laying down their life for them. That is much different than asking women to willingly obey someone who gets to be in control of them. I want to pause and say, I'm not saying go home and don't listen to your husband or don't be respectful to him. But I am saying that God's heart for you is different than what you may have thought it was. And I want us to really, really fully grasp that. So our last deconstruction for the morning anyway is that being the spiritual head does not have to look like what you have seen before. It may not be what your experience was like. And you may need to release what your experience was like in order to enter into the fullness of what you have. And that release may be of something that you saw as positive that your marriage is not like or something that you saw as negative that is tainting your expectation of what your marriage can become. Okay? So as we deconstruct that, how do we then reconstruct a picture in our head that can help us know what God's heart is for us, what a framework is for that woman who's trying to decide who she might marry, and how we can have that godly, God-honoring relationship with our husband. So the first part of our reconstruction is that godly headship is servant leadership. It was the first comment that was made from T when we were talking about what does it mean for the man to be the leader of the home? It is servant leadership. If you look at Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, and it, w- it is up on the screen. I just like having my Bible in my hands. It, let's see, we have Matthew and then Mark. Okay, Matthew 25, verse 20. Hmm, or let's try Matthew 20, verse 25. Do we like that one better? A little dyslexia. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be the first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." 
So the first thing about godly headship is that it's servant leadership. And I want to ask you a question. For some of you who have been waiting for your husband to be the spiritual leader of your home, I want you to take a look at your home life and ask yourself the question, how does my husband serve me? Does he bring you coffee in the morning? Does he hear you say something in October and remember it in December and give it to you for Christmas? Does he tuck the kids into bed when you've had a long day? Does he go to work every day and bring home provisions so that you and your family can eat and have a roof over your head? This is leading. For some of you who've had a picture of what it's supposed to look like and he hasn't been matching your picture, I challenge you to recognize that serving the family is leading the family because it is the picture of leading that Christ gave. And it's not the Western picture of leading. The Western picture of leading is the same as the Roman picture of leading. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority with them. Not so with you as a Christ follower. It is servant leadership. The next part of reconstruction is that headship can reflect many different styles of leadership. Okay, now we get into parts of this that just energize me. And the problem is we need like one hour for each of these. This needs to be like a a seminar. So we're going to go fast. And if it's just brand new to you, all of this is like online. And just Google it and there's just a ton of information about it, okay? Um, So the first one is this idea of many different leadership styles. Uh, Sherry, would you back up one slide just because we're not to the one about personality yet and I don't want anybody getting distracted like when is she going to talk about personality? Okay, so headship reflects many different leadership styles. This was off of the internet from a Wall Street Journal article and then there was a second one that was from someone else, under 30 CEO, I think. I typed that wrong. It says under 30 Echo. If you really want to look up the website, it was CEO. Okay, (laughs) so... You and I know this. It's it's kind of a going thing, especially in the business world. And these are kind of business examples that there are different ways to lead. So the visionary leader. This style is most appropriate when an organization needs a new direction. Okay? The coaching leader. This one-on-one style focuses on developing individuals, showing them how to improve their performance, and helping to connect their goals to the goals of the organization. So do you have a husband who maybe doesn't lead family devotions, but coaches your kid's sports team? Or or pulls them aside when they're having trouble with something and has a bedtime conversation with them? Um, Affiliative. This style emphasizes the importance of teamwork. You know, does your husband insist that the whole family get out to rake the leaves? Or does he take your family down to the UGM to serve a meal? Creates harmony in a group by connecting people to each other. The democratic style. This style draws on people's knowledge and skills and creates a group commitment to the resulting goals. You know, most of us want a democratic family. Uh, Most of us want a democracy. I need to just pause and throw this in. Um, Christianity isn't a democracy. God is not running a democracy. God is a benevolent dictator. See, the problem with dictatorship in our world is that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But God is not corruptible, and he's not running a democracy. He is the benevolent leader, and he gets to say how it works. It's important for us to recognize that that is not offensive or abusive or controlling. It just is. Because when you have a benevolent dictator who is seeking to bring out your best and give you good things, then you live in a place that's called heaven. (laughs) I'm not saying the democratic style is bad. I just went off on that because it said democratic. That's all. Pace-setting leader. In this style, the leader sets high standards for performance. He or she is obsessed about doing things better and faster and asks the same of everyone. Anybody married to a pace-setting husband? Commanding. This is the classic model of military-style leadership. Probably the most often used, but the least often effective. Here's a couple more. There's ten more on this one. I'm not going to read them all. Um, The entrepreneur. Okay, somebody who has a determination to give a project momentum and turn the visionary's idea into a reality. The strategist, they can break down the big picture into manageable tasks that can be divided. The directional leader, as critical decisions need to be made along the way, the directional leader determines with certainty whether and how best to grow or consolidate resources. Evangelical traditional Christianity has asked every husband to be a directional leader. 
Maybe not every man is wired to be a directional leader. Maybe he's wired to be a shepherding leader. Shepherds have leadership styles in management that are concerned with the welfare of individual team members. They are keenly aware of morale and excel at one-on-one meetings with employees who may be disillusioned with the project or other leaders. Are any of you married to a shepherd leader and you've been waiting for him to be a directional leader and you need to recognize that he is walking alongside you and he is husbanding your heart and caring for you and that is spiritual leadership? And if any of you recognize that maybe you are a directional leader and, and you and your husband are okay with it, it's okay for you to make a decision. It's okay for you to take the lead and say, what if we do this? And if he says, no, I really don't like that idea. I have, I have a hesitation about it. Then in human nature, by the calling universal to all of us, we would not push forward with our idea because we can, but nor would we back off from expressing that we think this would be a good decision to make because we're waiting for him to be the decision maker when he doesn't mind at all if, we, if I say, yeah, let's go to church tonight. What about a re-engineering leader? These types of leaders emerge when the project has veered off track. They are adept at seeing exactly what has gone right, what has gone wrong, and how teams can be rearranged. Are you married to a re-engineering leader who's always pointing out what's going wrong? Can you give him the grace to recognize that that's how he's wired and what he wants to do is acknowledge what could go right? We have to recognize that godly headship can reflect a whole lot of different leadership styles. We also need to recognize that headship will reflect individual personality. We're not made the same. We're not wired the same. And so when someone is seeking to lay down his life for us, that's going to look different depending on his personality. And how he steps forward to lead the family is going to look different depending on personality. How many of you are familiar with the Myers-Briggs personality typing tool? Okay, if you're not, I apologize. This is not a Myers-Briggs seminar, and I'm not going to give you enough information to fully understand it. I'm going to give you enough to make your head spin. But I want to talk about it a tiny bit because I think it's important. So Myers-Briggs is a, one of those um, inventory kind of tests that was developed to help people recognize what their preferences are in how they interact with the world. And there's four preferences that people look at. So the first one I've already actually mentioned today, it's being an extrovert or an introvert. Do you prefer to... Um, so an extrovert recharges with other people, and an introvert recharges by themselves. And there are other differences than that. This is way simplified, okay? But the extrovert is the person at the party who will go out, hey, my name's Jennifer, what's your name? Da-da-da-da-da, you know. And the introvert is the one who will go and find one person that they know and sit on a couch and talk with them all night, and they will have had a great party. And the extrovert will be like, man, you didn't talk to anybody but Fred. I mean, you've known Fred all your life. Why weren't you out and getting to know other people? Uh, I used to be an off-the-chart extrovert. I'm still an extrovert, but I have more introverted tendencies than I used to. The next preference is how we receive information. So do we receive information by sensing? That would be through our senses, what we see, taste, touch, smell, and hear, the facts, gathering facts and data. Or do we receive information intuitively? That sixth sense, I just know. How do you know? I don't know. I just know. (laughs) And quite honestly, they're often right. (laughs) There's this sense of just kind of intuiting what's going on in the world around them, and that's how they receive information, okay? The third preference is how we then process the information that we've received. Do we think about it, or do we feel about it, okay? So the thinking preference is the one who's pretty logical, uh, linear, they're going to figure this thing out. And the feeling preference is more the one that's kind of how is this going to impact the people around me? Do I, does it feel good? Does it feel bad? What am I going to do with this information? How do I feel about it? Okay? You got your thinkers and feelers. And your final one is then how you do life with all this information that you have thought and gathered. And that's um, judging, which is not me judgmental, or perceiving. This is the one I least understand, so it's the hardest one to explain, but this is my best awareness of it. The people who are a J, this judging side, are those who, like all their T's crossed and their I's dotted, they're the ones who get their assignments in on time, 
They're, they see more things more in black and white. There's a clear right and wrong. Um, they, so for example, if I have a leadership team and I am, we're going to discuss a chapter of a book, a J would like to have questions that they know that we're going to talk about when we get to our meeting. And a P would be like, oh, we'll just talk about whatever we're going to talk about when we get there. Now, hilariously, um, I do lead a leadership team. I do give them chapters of a book, and I'm the only P on the team. So I'll say, well, just, you know, what jumped out at you? You know, what resonated with you? And finally, one of my team members said, resonate. What does that even mean? What do you mean when say what resonated with you? Like, what do you want to know? Like, I've got this whole team of J's going, Jennifer, give us questions, and we'll tell you the answers. The P's are the people who are like, I can't write a term paper until it's 2 a.m. the night before. And they, they try. They try to do what the professors told them to do. But quite honestly, the ideas don't flow until 2 a.m. And quite honestly, we do pretty good work at 2 a.m. Because it's how we're wired. I have quit feeling guilty about being a procrastinator. There are times when it is a coping mechanism that I shouldn't do. But there are other times that I'm putting something off because, quite frankly, there's still a lot of time to get it done. And I can do it better later than right now. So, imagine with me, if you will, the difference between an extroverted, intuition, feeling, perceiving person leading a family than an introverted, sensing, thinking, judging person leading the family? Is your family organized and you know what your schedule is and your routine is? And then think about, so if we think that the man being the spiritual leader of the home means that he's the one who's got to do the devotions and lead us in prayer, but he's a perceiver who just lets everything fly by the seat of his pants and just he's flexible and let's go with it, and you're a judger, which is like, I want to know what we're doing and I want to know when we're doing it, then which one of you should be planning devotion times? This is not rocket science. If this is your gift, then do it. There are not roles in the Bible that say only the man can do this, this, and this, and only the woman can do this, this, and this. And if it works for you and your husband, if you are respecting him and he is laying his life down for you, then it does not matter to me who is making the decisions, who is leading the devotions, or who initiates prayer times. Do what you were wired to do in love towards the man who will do what he was wired to do in love towards you. This is a picture of godly headship and submission and relationship. Godly headship is also reflecting a variety of God languages. Okay, I told you, each of these could be a seminar in and of itself, okay? But I want to just give you a taste of it so that you recognize how big this picture can be when we have had it so narrow. So God languages. If you've never heard the term before, the premise is that there are many ways that you and I connect to God. And that the church... Different churches are good at different ones of these. And if you've grown up in the evangelical church, you've probably been very familiar with the God language of of worship and the God language of study, studying the Bible. The worship God language we call enthusiast. These are the people who feel closest to God when they are emotionally, physically worshiping their creator. And they love it when they get to do it in a whole group of people. And they're okay kind of with mystery and with feeling because that's just when they feel closest to God, when they are magnifying who he is. And the study piece, that's the intellectual. These people feel closest to God when they have got their Bible open and they are digging into what the scriptures say because the scriptures are living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword and they are the words of life. And when we dig through these pages and we learn what God the Father said and we learn what God the Son did, this is where we can come to really walk in maturity with how he created us to be and what he calls us to be. And the people who just thrive with, with studying his word have an intellectual God language. I know someone who comes to church and and worship just doesn't really do it for her. And she loves to study God's word, but that's not where she feels closest to him. She's a sensate. 
She feels closest to God when her senses are taking in beauty and taking in grandeur and taking in, a lot of times for a sensate, it's something that someone else has created. So your artists and your musicians and your cathedral builders and the people who take time to make things beautiful, it's because that's how they connect to God. They connect through God, through created beauty. And then the sensate is one who then can receive and receive God's presence in that place. And this friend of mine says, I can sit in an empty cathedral and weep. This is not my God language. I don't get it. But if I say she is not really a true follower of Christ because her God language isn't the same as mine, that's not okay. There's more. And what's in the back is a blue... um, sheet. If you've been in Hearts at Home a while, probably three years ago, I actually did a seminar on this, so you may have this somewhere, but if you don't and you want it, you can take this. It's a packet that has um, a little inventory of questions that can maybe help you see what your God language is, and then just some basic facts about each God language that can kind of build a little more on what I'm talking about. So to just run through the rest of them really quick, the activist is the person who feels closest to God when they are on the cutting edge of fighting evil. These are the people who are full-on immersed in the social justice issues of our day because that is where they feel closest to God, and that absolutely reflects God's heart. The ascetic is the person who feels closest to God in simplicity. Take away all the decorations. Take away all the noise. Give me a bare room and a candle, and give me silence. Oh, dear Jesus, please give me silence. (laughs) And I will feel close to God. The caregiver is one who feels closest to God when they are caring for others. They are pouring out their hearts for others, and that is how they are relating to God. The contemplative, I confess this is me. We're kind of hard to understand if you're not one of us, and that's okay. The contemplative is the person who feels closest to Jesus when they're sitting at his feet, like Mary did when Martha wanted her to go clean the house. I don't like cleaning my house either. That's how I know I'm a contemplative. (laughs) How do you sit at Jesus' feet when he's not physically present? The contemplatives are the ones who will say, God said this or God said that. And the intellectual is going, how do you know God said it if you didn't read it in his word? <laughs> and, the, and the caregiver's going, I've never heard God say anything to me at all. How can that be how God talks? Like, God doesn't talk to me. How does God talk to you? The contemplative is the one who's okay with the, the mystical and the, and the sense of God's presence. They're the one who are going to say, let's just wait for the Holy Spirit to come and speak to us. This is the contemplative. This is why you have to put up with me sometimes. We've talked about the enthusiast. We've talked about the intellectual. The naturalist is the person who feels closest to God when they're outside. You know, have you been waiting for your husband to lead your family in family devotions and wondering why he's not the spiritual leader, but every weekend he takes your family camping or outdoors or hiking or to the ocean? Because even if he can't enunciate it, he senses God's presence. He might not even think he's leading. He might think he's a bad leader because he's not doing devotions. But he's taking your family to the place where he feels the most healthy and the closest to God. I honestly believe that this pithy statement, this narrow view of what the man's role is, is as dangerous and damaging to men as it is to women. It is as dangerous and damaging as it is to men, as it is to women. The sensate we've talked about and the traditionalist. The traditionalist. I love my traditionalist friends. These are the ones who just love for things to be the way they've always been. They feel closest to God when they're singing hymns. If they've been sung for a hundred years, what's wrong with them? Why would we stop singing them now? They've got amazing theological truth. These hymns are so rich and so deep. These are the people that if you ask, they will know what colors correspond to certain spiritual truths. Because in the history of the church, purple means this and gold means this. Have you ever been in a church where there's those banners hanging? And a traditionalist could walk into the church and tell you what those banners mean without any words being on the banners. Because there's symbol and there's color and there's tradition and they know what it means. The traditionalist has the hardest time when the church starts making changes because you're messing with how they connect to God. 
And we've got to stop thinking that the traditionalists are fuddy-duddy and they just need to let go of their old ways and embrace the new because it's not about, it's not about generational change. It's about how they connect to God. There's something called the Book of Common Prayer. And the Book of Common Prayer is used throughout the world and it prays, it gives you a daily thing to pray. The traditionalist is the kind of person who loves to pray the Book of Common Prayer because they know that what they are praying is the same thing that millions of people around the globe are praying today. And they are joined in something that is so much bigger than them by being a part of tradition. In the same way that enthusiasts loves being a part of something that's so much bigger than them by being in a worship service with a thousand people. Our God language will determine so much how we personally pursue God spiritually. And when you take the idea of leadership, it will also determine how we lead those that we are leading because we will lead them to connect with God the way that we connect with God. I think that's why God languages have been a little bit of a problem because a lot of pastors are contemplatives. And so they project onto their congregation the way you need to connect with God is by sitting in your easy chair and opening your journal and talking with God about what's going on in your day. But if you're not a contemplative and that's not how you relate to God, but you want to be a good Christian, so you sit down in your chair every day and you open your journal and you try to write how you feel about what God is saying to you and you're like, I just don't get it. I must not be a good Christian because I've tried to do what everybody told me I'm supposed to do and I still feel dry. So Christianity didn't work for me. Do you hear the danger? If we don't grasp this concept of God languages, we are in danger of driving people away from the very God that they need because we are projecting onto them and prescribing to them the way that we connect with God. And if they don't connect with God that way, they're going to give it a try for a while and then say, I tried Christianity. It didn't work for me. And we have to give our husbands that same grace. So you've been with me a long time. We are wrapping up in the next 10 minutes. We have reconstructed what godly headship can look like, all the different varieties it can be. I hope you're catching a picture for what this might look like in your home. And I hope you're having some aha moments of, oh, he does do that. Or, oh, he is wired that way. Or, oh, I am wired that way. So why does it matter? Circling back to the question we asked at the beginning, why does it matter? It matters because God's heart for you as a woman is to thrive and be released into all your created beauty and strength. It's for you to thrive and be released into all your created beauty and strength. And if you feel like, I want to talk especially to those of you whose giftedness and strength looks a lot like the Western picture of a strong leader. Because I suspect that you may have wondered over the years if you're actually a good Christian or if you're a good wife or if you're okay because your giftedness looks like a strong leader and the man is supposed to be the leader. And you have struggled for years and years and years wondering, why did God even make me this way if I'm not supposed to act this way? And I want to say that God's heart for you as a woman is to thrive and be released into all your creative beauty and strength. And if he made you a leader, he wants you to be a leader. A leader who lays down her life for the people around, who does not demand her rights, who submits to God and submits to others out of love for Jesus. A leader who is not bossy, but a leader who is leading to thrive in the gifts and strengths that God has given us. It also matters because if you are dating or considering marriage someday, I want to give you a new framework than just what your experience has been. And here's the framework. Get to know Jesus so you can recognize a man who reflects his perfect headship. What is the very best way to be prepared to know if a man is a man you can marry? The very best way is to get to know Jesus because that's what you want your husband to reflect. And the better you know Jesus, the better filter you will have for whether or not the man that you are interested in is a reflection of Christ. And if you want to get to know Jesus, the best way to get to know him is to read the Gospels because that's where he lived his life. And you can see what Jesus said and know what Jesus did and pay attention to how he treated people and get to know who he is so that you have a new filter for this amazingly important decision. And if you're married, why does this matter? Well, it it takes another slide. It's not a pithy statement. 
And I want to finish with a couple thoughts about what it looks like in marriage to live in a godly and a God-honoring way in this relationship. And the first one is to celebrate the ways your husband does headship well. You guys, we know this, but we forget to practice it. In our daily life, what are the things that get the attention? The squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? So the things that get our attention are the things that are bugging us. And if that's all we ever bring up, we are doing a huge disservice to our husbands. We have got to be paying attention to what he's doing well, and we've got to express gratitude, and we have to tell him, I love it when you bring me coffee. Thank you. I love the fact that you're committed to camping. It is so good for our family to get out all the time. Pay attention to what he is already doing well and point it out and show gratitude. Somebody last night said, you know, that's also probably true for our dads. You know, wouldn't it be great to tell our dad, man, you did this really well. Thank you for the way that you did X, Y, or Z. We've got to celebrate the ways the husband does headship well. Second, we have to release your husband from the stereotypes and unrealistic expectations. If you came into marriage with a picture of what spiritual leadership would look like and you have been disillusioned with how your husband does that, you have got to release him from what you thought it would look like so that you can get to know who he really is and what he's really doing. And for some of you, that might even take a harder step. And, and ladies, I know this is a hard word, but I think it's a really, really true word, and it's this. You need to grieve the loss of what you thought it would look like. This is hard. And actually, I even recommend that you grieve it like you would a funeral. You know, at a funeral, they write a, an obituary. So you might even write an obituary. Dear perfect spiritual leader of the home, <laughs> who was kind and considerate and thoughtful and a quick decision maker and who led us in devotions and who asked me to pray with him every night before we went to bed, I'll miss you. <laughs> January 7th or 8th, or whatever today's date is, 2015, may you rest in peace. And I say that jokingly, but I understand for some of you, it is not a joke. You need to write out what you thought this would look like, and you need to grieve the loss that that is not what this is, so that you can embrace what it is, so that you can enter into a season of joy. You see, grieving will give way to joy, if we will do our grieving well and truly release it, we can embrace what it is and enjoy what we have for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years of marriage moving forward. But we have to grieve the loss first because if we continue to cling with a critical spirit and a nagging mouth to try to get him to be what we thought he was supposed to be because we thought that's what a spiritual leader looked like and we wave the Bible at him and we say, you're supposed to be the spiritual leader here. I need you to be something more for me. You've got to feel this. Do you know what you're doing? You are driving him out of your home and you are driving him away from Christ and you are driving him out of your heart because you are not letting him be free to be who he is. It's so important that we release what he's not and embrace what he is. Some husbands are trying so hard to fit this stereotype for you that they're drowning. And they need you to love them and respect them for who they are, not who you thought they would be. And finally, I recognize for some of you that it's quite possible and probable that your marriage will never look like the beautiful, symbiotic, organic, not-in-a-box relationship that God created for men and women that you've listened to me today and you've said, Jennifer, my husband doesn't love me like Christ loved the church. Jennifer, my husband is really strongly invested in this picture of the boss leader. And I want to say that that is not God's heart for you and invite you to entrust your heart to the God who truly wants you and to see you thriving. And as you entrust your heart to him, to not allow what happens in your home to cause you doubt on what God truly wants for you. Pray for your husband. I can't promise things will change. 
Point out what he's doing well. Respect him. Release him from what you thought it would be. It just may be that he changes more than you think he will when you release what you thought it was supposed to look like and quit nagging. And if it doesn't change, your heart rests in hands that are not human hands. Your heart rests in God's hands. And he is truly, whether you are male or female, married or not married, his hands are truly the only hands that can care for our heart and our deepest needs. And he is always with you. He is always there. And his headship is to see you brought up at the right hand of Christ thriving in the giftedness that he has given you and empowered to move forward in ways that you are passionate about and love moving forward. So don't lose sight of God's heart if what's happening in your home isn't a reflection of godly leadership. Let's pray. Father, this is big stuff. And I am just so aware that every word lands in a certain story and that every person sitting here has different experience and a different future. And only you can speak to the hearts of those who need to hear your word, your comfort, your encouragement. For some, this has been a confirmation that their marriage is on the right track. And for others, this has been an eye-opener of, wow, this is different than I thought. <laughs> God. Would you let your truth be spoken to each heart and would you silence the lies of the enemy who would seek to stir up anger, conflict, abuse? Would you give these women the grace of a godly response in light of what you are teaching us? In your name, amen. So next month, as I was preparing for all of this, there was way more information than I could possibly bring in one hour. And I realize that it really is only half the story. So next month, we're going to unpack what does God mean when he says the wife is to, be, is to submit to her husband, and what does that godly submission look like. So that's where we're going to go with part two of this next month, and it looks like Kara is going to wrap us up.